1: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Ursula Hackett, who's the author of America's Voucher Politics How Elites Learn to Hide the State. This is published by Cambridge University Press in 2020 and was recently awarded the American Political Science Association 2021 Education Policy and Politics Section Best Book Award. So I'm very honored to be talking to Ursula about this award-winning book. Um, My first question for Ursula is to ask her a little bit about herself and how she came to this particular project about vouchers and a sort of submerged state.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Lily. I'm delighted to be able to talk to you. Um, I do a little bit about myself and then I'll talk to you a bit about how I came into this project. I took all my degrees at Oxford and then I went on to do a postdoc at the Rothermere American Institute in Oxford, which is an absolutely stellar place for the study of American politics outside of the United States. Uh, and then I went on to uh, get a job at Royal Holloway, University of London, and that's where I am now. So the book really, the genesis of the book was at that time when I was a postdoc at the American Institute. Um, And I came into contact with a number of brilliant Americanists, people like Nigel Bowles, people like Desmond King, some people that I co-author with um, today, and also with a number of visiting professors um, from the uh, the US and elsewhere. And uh, the project itself grew out of a whole um, variety of research trips to U.S. state capitals across the country over a period of around eight years um, from 2010 onwards. So from that year in which Barack Obama experienced his midterm shellacking and the significance that there's a huge significance of that 2010 period of time, And the subsequent period for Republican ascendance for the sort of stories I'm telling about voucher politics in this book. Um, And I'm interested in school vouchers for a whole variety of different reasons. They've they've been in existence in the United States for at least 70 years, 150, 160 years if you count the town tuitioning programs in Maine and Vermont. Um, but they present, I, I think, a really interesting set of puzzles for political scientists because of the way in which they absolutely exploded in number after 2010, despite the constitutional obstacles that those programmes face, the sort of legal obstacles that they face, whether from the uh, points of, of First Amendment law, religious establishment and so on, uh, but also on grounds of uh, equal protection, discrimination, and of educational adequacy and uniformity and so on. So there's a whole load of different interesting puzzles, I think, that this, um, the existence and the expansion of voucher programmes present to us as political scientists. And they're also an interesting case of policy design, um, because these they take many different forms. You've got vouchers, you've got tax credit voucher pro- programmes, you've got educational savings accounts. Um and there are various creative ways in which policymakers have designed these programs with a view to thinking about the legal consequences of what they're doing. Um, and finally, I just say that I, I'm also interested in these the, the instance of vouchers because they invoke America's foundational identity struggles over race, over religion, over the role of markets and unions and civic institutions. So as an American political development scholar, this is an absolutely
1: perfect subject of investigation. And I was I was delighted to read through your book because I had done work a long time ago in like a past political science life um, on the base realignment and closing commission and and how that was kind of obscuring responsibility for decisions that were not popular, um, but it wasn't about the legal issues. Your book sort of takes this question of both the rhetoric and the policy design. And sort of talks about how they're trying to obscure something else. What is it that that essentially you talk about as attenuated politics? What is being obscured, and what do you mean by attenuated politics? Fantastic. Okay,
2: so the conceptual apparatus of this book, this idea of attenuated governance, is absolutely central. And what I mean by that, roughly, is that um, we're thinking about the use of private organisations or the tax system to deliver particular Uh, benefits in such a way that you can obscure the role of the state in uh, particularly vulnerable policy commitments and areas of of hot-button constitutional contestation. Now, you're quite right, Lily, the vast majority of the scholarship on the submerged state or delegated governance or hidden welfare state is focused on the public understanding angle, and it's hugely consequential uh, how much the public or how little the public actually knows about um, these benefits and their their nature and the scope of the state. That has huge policy, policy and um, political consequences. But what I'm focusing on here is on the legal angle, um, and that's where attenuated governance really comes in. So what the uh, policymakers can try to do through these forms of attenuated governance... Let me give you some examples. I think we need to make this concrete to our listeners here. So there's there's a you can have regular vouchers where instead of appropriating the money... Directly, if you give the money directly to the to the private school to the religious school, that would be patently unconstitutional. Um, Not only under the under First Amendment, but also under the state no aid provisions or Blaine amendments, which prohibit public aid to denominational institutions. So you can design a policy uh, in a more attenuated fashion by providing the money to the parents uh, and allowing the parents to direct through their private individual choice that that those particular educational benefits. Um, but you can do it in an even more attenuated fashion so um, a regular voucher is a direct directly appropriated the, the, the money but you can do it through tax credit voucher scholarships as well where you instead of directing the directly appropriating the money you deduct taxation from donations to these organizations called scholarship tuition organizations which then provide administer the scholarship to the parent to spend on behalf of the child. It is incredibly complex and convoluted chain that attenuates, that's why I'm calling it attenuated governance, attenuates that connection between the state on the one hand and the private school on the other. Now, that has legal consequences. It's not the same mechanism as pertains in the area of public understanding, electoral politics, because judges aren't fooled about the size and scope of these programs, they have that information. A court a, a court of law is a, a, an arena that is a high information arena. But what it does do is provide a rationale in favor of the constitutionality of these programs that may or may not stand up in court. Because what you can say as an advocate for these policies is that it's not the state. The state is not involved. The government is not involved in providing these benefits and, and that can allow judges and justices to come to a determination about the constitutionality of these programs that may go in your favor.
1: And so the the legal dimension is really what you dig into in the book. But before we get into this legal dimension, which I think is, as you say, very complex in terms of its arrangement, um, you you note at the beginning of the book that this this area of policy and also the construction of attenuated governance is really also part of or built on these three dimensions of American political development and American sort of qualities and characteristics around religion, race, and institutional sort of history and structure and what we expect of the state. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that framing? Yeah, so...
2: I mean, one of the things that drew me to vouchers in the first place is because it is a it is a perfect um, sort of ca- camera lens for thinking about these broader foundational identity struggles that have been present since the very founding moment, if not before. <laughs> um, which is that that uh, and this is where it becomes very firmly a work of American political development, I think, and because I'm thinking in terms of this very long historical sweep um and the f- fundamental intuition behind this idea of foundational identity struggles is that um there are there's continuous contestation over the meaning of what it is to be american um and neither side in these foundational identity struggles ever fully wins out over the others. So there might be periods of time in American history where you've got one side or the other in ascendance, um, but then the sort of pendulum swings back and that there are various ways in which um, those ideas become delegitimized, and other ideas come and take their place. So it's a sort of, it's a very broad brush um, vision of American political development and history. So you've got a racial struggle, which of course um, is a defining characteristic of American political development and history. Between those who have historically sought to erect strict racial hierarchies and to defend them, and those who have sought, on the other hand, to demolish those racial hierarchies and promote racially egalitarian ideas, of course, I'm not the only, I'm not the first person to have thought about this. Um, my colleague Desmond King has written with Roger Smith very eloquently about the relationship between white supremacist orders and racial egalitarianism, and how those different orders have fought with one another over the course of American political history, and um, with um, huge consequences for every aspect of American politics and policy. Um, But there are other foundational identity struggles which I think interlace with that racial struggle in really interesting ways. So there's a religious struggle, of course, which was also present um, at the founding moment and prior to that founding moment between those on the one hand who are accommodationist, who believe that government uh, should promote the greatest religious flourishing. And on the other hand, the secularist urge, which says that government, uh, state and church should be separate. And you see those that struggle playing out at the founding moment and also over the um, history of American politics. And then there's a third struggle, which I'm calling the sort of public-private struggle between those, on the one hand, who think that, you know, individuals should be free as far as possible from an overweening state, get the government off our backs. And then, on the other hand, communitarians, um, which, again, have this long history in American political tradition, those who think that government should build civic institutions for the collective good. So the interaction between these different foundational struggles, I think, gives rise to some of the political dynamics that I discuss in the book, Um, and in particular, the question that arises at the intersection of these foundational identity struggles um, is what do you do as an elite who adheres to these various um, political commitments, as an accommodationist, as an individualist, as a white supremacist, what do you do when you start to see Alternative ideas, rival ideas, gaining a degree of control within the an authority within the institutions of the state. So what do you do? Well, um, what do you do as a white supremacist when Jim Crow seems to start to be dismantled and you have the, 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 the instantiation of racially egalitarian ideas in the middle of the 20th century by the courts? What do you do as an accommodationist after many, many decades of ascendance within the public school system, but also in various other ways when the Supreme Court starts to uh, um, hew towards a much more strictly separationist vision of church-state relations? What do you do? And there's various different ways in which you can um, respond. So you could fight directly and, and run the risk of, a, of of major losses in court. You can back down from these commitments, but of course these commitments are foundational. They are central to your, to your sort of vision of who you are and what this nation is. Or, and here's an alternative vision, and that's what I outline in the book, you can act indirectly. So you can think, okay, so are there various subtle, under-the-radar ways in which we might be able to achieve what we want to do without... Uh, arousing that sort of, um, the, the, or raising the, the prospect of legal challenge um, um, quite so much. So I think when it comes to vouchers, we can absolutely trace that history as the story uh, initially in the 50s and the 60s of white supremacists, segregationists who say, OK, um, we've got a whole series of um, racial egalitarian ideas that are in this clearly in this sentence in the federal courts. What can we do to try to preserve our policy commitments? Well, they do all sorts of. Some of them fight directly, of course, um, but others seek indirect and subtle ways of achieving their aims. They, they say, "Oh, well, we're going to privatise our white primaries. We're going to transfer public um, uh, pools and recreation facilities to private hands um, in such a way that we try to we try to distance the state from the, these these newly vulnerable policy commitments." And we create segregationist tuition vouchers, which are going to enable white kids to escape for the private sector um, uh, and, and try to achieve our aims that way. And, and I, draw, I draw an analogy with the various tactics that are used also um, by accommodationists who say, OK, well, we've tried various ways in which we can um, support religious institutions, religious education. Um, uh, uh, we're being pushed back by First Amendment law, by also by state no aid provisions, what can we do? Well, we can create voucher programmes. But if those don't work, well, we can create tax credit voucher programmes, which are um, allow us to provide funding for the sorts of education that we want to provide funding for, um, but in a way that doesn't involve a direct appropriation, doesn't involve the state's mark, the imprimatur of the state. And so we can hope to actually defend them from challenge, from rival ideas um, and institutions.
1: And one of the points that you make in the book is also that this is not just one side, the political partisanship on one side. That this, the the sort of attenuated governance, is something that has been pursued by conservatives and liberals, by Democrats and Republicans, um, and with different sort of desires as the outcome, obviously, um, but that it's not just the activity of one side. At the same time, as you note, that 2010 is an important sort of jumping off point. Um, Can you discuss a little bit about this sort of different partisan approaches, as well as why 2010 and the Obama shellacking and the Republican ascendancy in the states is important? Sure. Yeah. So there's
2: two really interesting questions there. I mean, I think um, um, the story of the rise of vouchers um, in their various forms is the story of conservatives finding creative strategic ways to avoid successful legal challenge. But what I do try and emphasize in the book is that these strategies are not only available to conservatives. And actually, there have been situations in which liberals have pursued their aims through these attenuated um, uh, mechanisms. So, for instance, in the case of housing vouchers, um, that's something I, I talk a bit about and a little bit about in the book, um, which has got a very different partisan profile in terms of people who support these sorts of policies to school vouchers. Um, and I think the story there is partly one of racial egalitarians who find during the eighties you've got the sort of backlash against the Great Society, you've got a sort of um, concerns to the, about about sort of direct um, affirmative action programs and so on, a sort of a sort of a sort of backlash at that during that decade. And so one of the ways in which you can help, in particular low af- low income African Americans, is to support housing voucher programs, which instead of provide sort of direct funding for public housing projects, which might attract more of a pushback, you can turn to these sorts of um, more attenuated housing voucher programmes. And there are various other ways. um, We can talk about these more if you'd like, Lily, but there are other ways in which liberals more recently have used these sorts of attenuation mechanisms in court to try to defend their programmes from attack. Um, But the big story with respect to school vouchers certainly has been conservatives, really being very creative about this and in 2010 that's the big moment where they spot their chance and they see um the the um because of the way way in which republicans gain control of so many state houses at that time um they've got unified control and they're able to actually start to prosecute their agenda a whole load of things of course right to work um as well as school voucher programs and that's really when you start to see not only the increase in the number of regular voucher programs but also tax credit voucher programs really take off what I'm sh- what I'm able to do is show in the book it's not just a, it's so there's a it's a mixed methods book um I should say it's I mean it's a it's a it's a story of American political development so I'm using a lot of archival um, materials but I've also got some statistical relationships in there and, and statistical analysis of some original data sets that I've collected on policymakers and on judges um, and there you can see that Republican partisanship is a really important part of the predictors of both policymakers voting in favor of these things, but then also later of judicial decisions. And we might come onto to that in a moment, perhaps. Um, but it's not just about the statistical side of things. It's also the interviews. And this is where I can really shed light on um, what happened in 2010 and afterwards, because you can see by talking to individual policymakers and um across the states, that they're thinking in a very creative and strategic way about um, how they can best create programmes that will survive legal challenge. And so they're going back to the drawing board. They're going, OK, this one didn't work, right? Um, We had that struck down by court action. What can we do? How can we design this programme in such a way that it will withstand future legal challenges? So the thing that happens in 2010 is, yes, Republicans gain control. They're able to prosecute their agenda. But you know, they've still got to worry about the courts. They've still got to worry about a whole load of um, of, of judges and justices who are going to be um, deciding the constitutionality of their program. So I do happen to believe that policymakers care about policy <laughs> and they care about preserving their policy commitments into the future. So it's not just about passing these things. It's also about, okay, how can we uh, preserve this from legal challenge down the road?
1: And I, I found that point that you made really Important to think about because you're right. Most of the time, we think about policy; it needs to pass, right? And we have we have this gridlock system these days where it's almost impossible to get at the federal level things passed. Um, but you're talking about not just that part. Obviously, the design of the policy and having the sufficient votes, as you talk about in the in the state houses, but then that has to be sustained afterwards when the legal challenges come. Um, and this is where you also talk about the policy design, the, atten- the attenuated nature of the design, not that it was attenuated in its designing, but that it is designed to be attenuated government governance, as well as attenuated rhetoric. Um, so before we get into the judges and the court challenges, can you sort of unpack these dimensions of attenuated governance? Sure.
2: So I think um, the idea here is to think about these two analytically separable dimensions. These dimensions don't necessarily go hand in hand all the time. So that's the crucial insight there. Um, There's the policy design dimension, which I've been talking a lot about, and that is this Um, when you use the private system or the tax system to deliver the benefit and you have this very convoluted um attenuated chain between the state on the one hand and the private school on the other but there's also this this idea of attenuating rhetoric uh, and that's really simply where you're trying to play down the role that the state um is playing in 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 a particular um uh, area of policy and um one of the interesting things to look at is the situations in which the attenuating rhetoric and the attenuated design don't match up. Um, I've talked a bit about the segregationists and their tuition grant vouchers, which are amongst the first iterations of these programmes in the 50s and the 60s after Brown v. Board. They're going, oh, cripes, how are we going to um, um, defend this institution? Well, the big problem for the segregationists, although they they engage in incredible acts of um, attenuated policy design, so they create these programmes um, often it, it, they, they they get struck down by court action multiple times. Louisiana, they they had four m- different rewrites of this law. It got struck down each time and they kept coming back to the drawing board and they go, OK, what can we do? Well, um, we can create private commissions to administer these programs. We offer the money not directly to the school, but to the parent. And they can direct that to the school. So there's a fair degree of attenuated policy design. But the segregationists are pretty open about their purposes in se- supporting segregation. They say, we're going to do this despite the brainwashers and the communists. This is to keep our schools segregated. I mean, they, you know, these, they're, they're unable to obscure their purposes. And, and here's the thing, you can trace this to the courts. I mean, the, the judges then say, well, look, there's a disjuncture here. You've got this incredibly uh, complex and very carefully designed policy in many cases. But, you know, it's pretty obvious what you're trying to do. And it's very obvious that you are, um, you, you know, you are, are are violating the constitution and so on that basis they strike it down. So okay, you know, conservatives watch and learn. They see that this is this is obviously not the way to do it. Um and then there are more recently you get these iterations of these more direct vouchers. The sorts of things that were that were um created in Cleveland and in Milwaukee um in the 90s and which were then sort of subsequently um, uh, attacked in court all the way up to the Supreme Court, culminating in the big zalman versus Simmons-Harris um, decision with the Supreme Court, which actually ultimately upheld the constitutionality of these programmes. Those programmes survived, but there were many other efforts on the, the sort of uh, regular voucher programmes, which provides a fairly fairly obvious connection between the state and the school, you know, you're just directly appropriating the money for these things, which did get struck down as unconstitutional. They're more likely to be... Um, challenged in court and then if they are challenged they're more likely to be struck down as unconstitutional. So um, again <laughs> the big story there is that when in 2010 republicans gain control of a whole, whole bunch of state legislatures and governorships, what they're aiming to do is to marry these strategies of attenuated policy design and attenuating rhetoric. So they say okay we're going to play down the role of the state, we're going to emphasize the benefits to the child, Um, a lot of the times. And that is both a political rallying cry, one that's very powerful, I think. We put the focus on the children. We don't put the focus on the schools. Um, And we're very careful about how we speak about these programmes. And I have many, many situations where I was with my interviewees and they say, gosh, don't say voucher. We never say voucher. That's a dirty word. Um, We don't use the word voucher. Everyone's saying this. Um, uh, But they're very careful about how they speak about these programmes. And they say this is about the benefits of the child. So it's a political rallying cry, but it's also illegal. Um, uh, um, uh, slogan as well, and one that actually does very well in court. If you can say that you have child benefit theory, is the theory that if you provide the benefit to the child and not directly to the institution, that benefit is constitutional in a way that the direct appropriation would not be. So I think the the big story about this, this rapid explosive growth in the number of voucher programmes after 2010, is the success. They hit upon the right formula. They know that they need to marry the policy design with the rhetoric. You need to be careful about how you talk about the state and you need to design your program in such a way that um, uh, it's not, there's a a non-obvious involvement of the state in this private conduct.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: And the involvement of the state is the tricky part in all of this is that because if the if the state is too connected, to what's going on and the outcome is one that is in violation of aspects of either state or federal constitution then it's likely to be struck down and and you talk a lot about how the the sort of attenuated governance has to separate the state even though the state is still involved which seems to be the kind of magic that is going on in these policy areas how has the state been kind of divorced from the policy?
2: Well, some, um, I mean, this is a live issue of contestation. And and this is why, you know, there there are different schools of thought um, within what's called tax expenditure analysis about whether these benefits really do truly represent a state, like a government policy. Um, uh, and, um, and it's, it's a conservative liberal split right now. So you kind of have, um, there's a, there's a famous, um, Supreme court decision in 2010, which was Arizona Christian school tuition organization versus win in which, uh, the conservatives on the one hand argued that, um, uh, these targeted tax breaks are basically, um, this is not state. Um, so a tax credit uh, scholarship Is private money effectively? Um, It's not about. It's not public monies. It's private monies. The liberals on the other hand said, "Well, you know, targeted tax breaks." And direct appropriations are means of accomplishing precisely the same objective—to provide a particular benefit to a particular constituency—and so that is a live arena of contestation about whether, indeed, the state is unconstitutionally entangled with these issues. I mean, that's 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 the the, the foundation of all of this, these these, these legal controversies. Um, but what I think the current case law tells us, and what those two major Supreme Court precedents tell us the Zellman case and of course the, uh, the Wynne case is that um, the, the sort of um, the, those uh, visions of um, uh, 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 the state is not involved and this is actually um, uh, not, not a government social program that's in the ascendance right now and the liberal vision of tax, tax breaks as being equivalent in lots of ways to government spending has sort of um, is less in favor.
1: And the current Supreme Court in the United States, as well as the state courts, where do, where have they come down and where are they? You say this is like the, this is where they are in ascendance right now. Um, And the judges and how much information judges have and the courts have in unpacking these, how does that operate? Okay, so you can see... The, these battles playing out in the
2: judicial opinions um, uh, and you can see how um, amongst concurrences and dissents you can see how judges are actually thinking about these issues and that's and I look in my book at over 70 years of voucher litigation so I've got the, the um, huge swath of time where you're looking at judges and justices and how they are deciding not only in the federal level of course but also at the state level where a whole load of this is going on um, and uh, uh, you can see um, the, the turns of the tide in these broad, um, in these, in these, across these broad spots of time. So I would say so that over time, you can st- see that judges and justices have become more sympathetic over time to these programmes, voucher programmes of all sorts, tax credit voucher programmes, voucher programmes, educational saving accounts and so on. And I use the term voucher as a shorthand for all of these different kinds of designs. Um, uh, and, and I think partly, partly that's because of supportive precedents being built up over time Um, but also I think of of advocates and policymakers being much more careful and strategic about how they are talking about these programs and how they are designing these programs in such a way anticipating the legal challenge so it's an iterative creative process that's played out over many years. Um, So judges are becoming more sympathetic over time there is also a statistically significant effect of partisanship which I mentioned just before Um, republican appointed judges and justices are statistically significantly more likely to uphold these vote to uphold these programs as constitutional than their democratic appointed counterparts well that's not a surprise because we know that the partisanship um, of this issue is very very strong what is interesting and this is this is the, on w- the the point on which this book hinges is that even controlling for partisanship and for a variety of other judicial characteristics there is a statistically significant, role for policy design. So the programs which hide the role of the state most successfully are not only more likely to pass in legislatures, but they're also less likely to be challenged. And um, if they are challenged, they're more likely to be upheld as constitutional. So it's kind of like a triple whammy for the supporters of these programs that they're able to, uh, They have it has that effect at each of these different stages. And you can show how that plays out over time.
1: And the policy design aspect, which, again, is really where you highlight the attenuated governance dimension that is part of this longer discussion of the submerged state um, and obscured results. Uh, How can we understand the changes in the policy design that you highlight so in in such depth um, in terms of Making it more disconnected from the state, making the the like the making the policy the the school more um, disconnected from the state, making the school and the whole process of you know when we're talking about money goes to schools from you know from my state house in Madison it goes to my local school, um, and that's how it generally works. But what you're talking about is how are these policies being designed so as to sort of structure the the money <laughs> to go to the school, um, and how has it become more effective, um, even as it seems to be also quite complex. Sure.
2: So, I mean, I think that um, I, I I really want to make a a, a a quite a, a distinct a clear distinction in the book between the electoral arena and the judicial arena in the sense that i think um uh as i I mentioned before i mean i don't think informational asymmetry pays a very big role in terms of making a determination of of how judges are going to rule on these things but it plays a huge role in the electoral arena because informational asymmetries between the public and the sort of interest groups that are in really engaged in these areas is is causally very significant in that arena um, so I think that um it's it's not necessarily I, I make no determination in the book about whether it is indeed true that the government is you know uh, the, the, these whether these legal arguments have merit or not. you know, I, I don't actually come down on either side of that debate. I simply observe that it's been instrumentally very useful for these policymakers and for advocates on behalf of these policies to at least be seen to. um, uh, to to break the link between the state and the school okay so so um it's all about appearances i'm very i'm agnostic on on the question of whether um uh, it is it it, you know those legal arguments have merit the point is that they work um that actually it's possible for these um arguments to be made in court and judges seem to accept them now I'm not also making any determination in the book about whether those judges are cynical in their approach or whether this is indeed a sneaky. I mean, there's a whole load of interest. I mean, a lot of scholarship, a lot of the revisionist scholarship on the welfare state is kind of got there's a there's a, norm, there's a very clear normative angle there. Right. This is a sneaky means of achieving objectives. It hides the just and due um, uh, role of the state. The state should be given more credit. That's kind of the angle, isn't it, of, of a lot of this scholarship. I, I don't mean to make a normative judgment, or at least I hope I don't make a normative judgment in this book. But I simply observe that judges, whether for sincere reasons or cynical ones, are taking up these rationales, and you can trace the uh, the relationship between the sort of the sort of rationales that advance in the political arena, and also uh, by the policymakers themselves, by advocates, and by the judges. So um, there is the the argument is that you can break that connection, um, and i some of the work i mean i might be skipping ahead a little bit here but some of the work which i I'm, I'm trying to i'm working on now uh, as a sort of function of my work on attenuated governance is the various other arenas in which you can de-link the sort of controversial policy purposes intentions programs and effects in all sorts of different areas of of of, con- of hot-button constitutional controversy, not just school vouchers, but abortion politics, in gun control politics, in voting rights, and, and a whole of, host of other different areas. So um, I think that this this rationale of, of sort of attenuating the connection between the state on the one hand and then the ultimate object of that policy on the other um, is, I think, has been found to be very successful. And it's it's something that, that policymakers,
1: I think, um, seek to take up in prosecuting case that was going to be my next question is how how transferable is this process to other areas other policy areas that are potentially controversial as you'd note that like gun rights or abortion rights or um, voting rights and so forth how does this particular model for policy design atten- and attenuation um, work for those particular areas. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. So there's a very clear disanalogy in the sense that um, when it comes to things like um, abortion politics or gun control, um, we're not talking here about, uh, you know, it's all about regulations. It's not about attenuation. It's not about necessarily um, uh, 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 providing funds through a tax expenditure mechanism, but it is there, there are analogies in the sense that there is, it is, it is politically and legally expedient for policymakers to play down the connection between authoritative government action and particularly controversial policy outcomes. So if get, let me give you an example. I mean, we're thinking about, um, abortion politics and the, uh, the, the 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 constitutional right at issue here, of course, is 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 one that is currently um, um, uh, uh, defended by U.S. Supreme Court precedent under Roe, and so an outright ban on abortion would be unconstitutional. But there are various ways in which you can uh, circumscribe that right by targeting not only individual women through. Um, uh, uh, um, informed consent laws and so on, waiting periods and a whole variety of other different things, but also through targeting clinics and targeting regulation of abortion providers and providing for hospitalisation requirements on the part of those people performing abortions in in, in those um, uh, facilities, but also um, corridor widths, um, sanitary requirements, so a whole load of different things that can be applied to the clinics. Um, and the effect of many of these policies is to reduce um, the ability of those clinics to actually operate in particular jurisdictions, in some cases, just closing entirely in whole um, states. <laughs> um, so, so that can have the same effect, but in a way that doesn't necessarily directly um, uh, challenge the constitutional right. Now, I would also say, and this is where I, I, sort of, I. I um, uh, I don't mean to suggest that this is just conservatives who are focusing on these things, but also in the policies of gun control. I mean, you know, a direct under DC versus Heller, there is a constitutional right to carry, and so a direct ban upon guns would be unconstitutional. What can you do? Well, there are various indirect ways in which you can circumscribe the rights of gun owners in quite inciting just the same way as those who seek to circumscribe the right of those exercising their right to an abortion so um, um for instance through um background checks and permit and licensing regimes and you can do various things um with respect to the federal firearms l- licensees and so on um and so what you can see with respect to both of these areas of hot button constitutional cons- cons- uh, contestation and that is that's where the, the, the voucher analogy comes in because of course school choice is another hot button area of constitutional cons- contestation there is a legal expedient to seeking to uh, delink those policies, any any sort of sense that there is a policy um, unconstitutional policy purposes, but also of effect. So you can say this isn't truly a burden um, upon women or upon gun owners because it would only affect a very small number of people, um, uh, and that would be. Uh, and we're not directly impinging upon that right. Or it could be that we're not we're not actually seeking to. Um, Uh, infringe upon these constitutional rights. No, no, we're seeking to um, aid women's health or we are seeking to, we've got common sense firearm safety regulations or we've got a benefit to a child and it's not to the school. So there are all sorts of ways in which you can talk about these things in such a way that if you can persuade the judges and justices that those anodyne reasons represent your reasons for acting, uh, you can find that that's very helpful in court. And I can show you again statistically that over 50 years or more of litigation on these issues. Again, partisanship plays a huge role, so Republican judges and justices are more likely to vote in favour of abortion restrictions and of striking down as unconstitutional gun restrictions. But uh, there is a very, a very important role to be played by policy design as well. Uh, and the, and the, those, those policies that most effectively mask the the uh, connection between authoritative state action and the exercise of a constitutional rights at the other end of the chain, even if it's through regulatory mechanisms rather than through the sort of attenuated uh, governance mechanisms I'm describing in my book, I think there is an analogy there, um, and I think it's a story that needs to be told.
1: Um, and this is this is a sidebar question. Um, my own curiosity and because so much is being written these days about neoliberalism and this question of choice and freedom um, that how how much of this idea of attenuated governance is also kind of in this neoliberal framework?
2: Um, I think, I, 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 sp- I spend so much time in my book talking um, uh, about the ways in which both conservatives and liberals can access and use these techniques. And and this is, uh, I just say this very quickly because I'm going to cut. I think this is a fascinating question about neoliberalism, but I just want to quickly say that there's this this point about foundational identity struggles, about race and religion and white supremacy and communitarianism and individualism and accommodation and so on. What I'm talking about there is those are foundational. So those are sort of about the ultimate aims. You don't give up those aims because you care about those. Those are basic to your vision of yourself as a political actor. But I think that my vision of politics is one in which policymakers and advocates are actually quite um strategic and creative and instrumental about how they get there a lot of the time i mean there's there's different ways in which you might um uh uh you, you might draw. T- you might feel that the the means is a sneaky thing, and so there are various people who, who who object to the means because they think that it's a that it's um it's sneaky to do things in an underhand sort of indirect way, and that actually we ought to be open about our policy purposes and honest about what we're doing philosophically. So there are people who 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 have who have said that to me, and who who are in the, this debate and who make that that argument. But I think on the whole, many of the people that I talk to, and many of my vision of how this has played out over time, is that policymakers are quite instrumental about different ways of getting there. So however you can get there, the ends justify the means and and whatever that end happens to be on different sides. Okay, so I make a whole point about conservatives and liberals, they do um, both, they have both on various occasions used these techniques, but I think your point about neoliberalism is absolutely on point, Lily, which is that um, these are accessible, um, they are more easily accessible, I would say, to those who are on the conservative side of the spectrum. and I would say that th- this absolutely fits in with the story about the rise of neoliberalism in various different arenas of politics and political life. I think the interesting story now and the one that I think we that I need to sort of grapple with as the sort of coda to the book is... What happens when a lot of those forces actually win out, and 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 you you know it's 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 not it, this has been a story about electoral winners who fear that they're going to be legal losers, but now they're not legal losers. <laughs> you know, um, there's a whole load of ways in which um, the conservatives have been pushing back in court, and you start to see. I mentioned Zelman, I mentioned Win, but recently we've had 2017. The Supreme Court came out in. Uh, trinity lutheran versus coma um, that the no aid provision in missouri is um uh, unconstitutional that actually it's not right that this this um this uh, uh private religious school should not be allowed to take part in a playground resurfacing program from the state um excluded on, on on free exercise grounds not on on establishment grounds and and then only last year also there was the espinosa decision versus montana in which it was found that the Montana state could not exclude religious schools from that program. It's not about the, the, the establishment concern, but it's about the exclusion of religious schools from that particular program. Um, so uh, the, the, the story, I think, is of conservative ascendance more generally um, um, and uh, ways in which now perhaps there is a lesser necessity of conducting your business in this indirect way um, because you, you feel that you can Um, You can achieve your aims more directly, perhaps, Um, confident that there is a secure legal cushion that will um, prevent you from um, experiencing loss in court.
1: So that the the, the sort of longer line of precedent at this point is more protective of both the need for obscuring rhetoric and possibly obscuring designs.
2: I think that's yeah I mean well I think I think that's right but I think that it's it's no longer required for you to actually engage to quite such degree as has hitherto been the case in these sorts of indirect approaches so I think one of the manifestations of that is the real is the spread of educational savings accounts and um, uh, those are a more on, 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 in general, they are a slightly more less complex way of achieving the same aim, and they, they've been spreading quite rapidly, including in particular this year. I mean, the pandemic has, whoa, I mean, it's put rocket boosters under school choice. You've had um, 18 states that have actually either uh, created new programs or they've expanded their existing ones. Um, uh, including some states that I went to. I mean Missouri was an interesting one. i was I spent some time in Jefferson City, the Jeff um, uh, and it was a very interesting experience there because there I was looking at a, a case where despite the fact this is a ruby red you know republican controlled state, um uh, they hadn't passed any kind of voucher or tax credit program. I was thinking, well, why, you know why why didn't these I mean Texas is another example. and Texas is a really interesting case as well. It's surrounded by voucher adopters, but they've never actually adopted any kind of voucher. And, and this is such a partisan issue that I sort of wanted to get to the grips with that. And, um in the in and the story there was really one about rural Republican legislators kind of combining these really interesting strange bed phone um, alliances with Democrats in order to defeat these programs because um for a whole load of different reasons which I don't necessarily need to go into right now but what's interesting is Missouri has only just, has just passed their educational savings accounts program this this year so it's huge because um I, you know I've met a lot of these people who've been pushing and pushing and pushing for a decade um, or more um, and then They've, they've experienced this success. So there's, there's, a, there's a big story here, I think, about the pandemic pushing the school choice cause. But I think it is a broader story also of that supportive legal precedent of judges and justices who over time have built up this case law on this subject. And those rationales are very easy and available. It puts teacher unions in particular and those on the liberal side of the the, the, the argument on the back foot. Um, uh, and it makes it more difficult for them to succeed in court in their challenges.
1: So my my final question, of course, is: What are you working on now? Is it an extension of this research or something completely different?
2: Right. So um, I mentioned the uh, the case of abortion and gun control. I mean, I want to think more generally about the quiverful of strategic arrows that policymakers have in their armory and what can they do um, and what are the sort of strategic options and the creative options that are available to them in different areas of policymaking that enable them to deal with the prospect the possibility of legal challenge from their opponents and i think this is absolutely it has this is so timely because the courts have become um very very important you mentioned early on in some of your remarks um, of just the, the, the hyper-partisanship, the polarisation, the, the stasis, the difficulty of achieving legislative success at the federal level, um, the way in which the, the, we've got all these narrow electoral majorities, right? frequent changes of control. So there's a sort of, it doesn't encourage, it encourages you to turn towards the courts. So the courts become even more important now than they have always, and they've always been crucial, but they've become even more important, I think, today in this era of hyper-polarisation and of frequent changes of um, control. And so what I'm interested in is looking at what policymakers do in these circumstances. How do they think about, um, how do they navigate this world, this this strategic landscape? And I think it would also be interesting, and I, I'd like to think more generally also on an abstract and conceptual level about how we understand modes of policymaking change in historical institutionalism. So I am an American political development person at heart. Um, Uh, that's another, I think, a more more sort of conceptual discussion that I think we need to have that takes stock of the enormous value of the scholarship on the submerged state and of the delegated state and of the hidden welfare state that has been published over the last couple of
1: decades. Well, I hope Um, when one of these are published as a book, you'll come back and talk to me about them. I hope so. Thank you. Um, I was joined today by Ursula Hackett, author of America's Voucher Politics, How Elites Learn to Hide the State, which won the APSA 2021 Education Policy and Politics Section Best Book Award. This is published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Um, I assume one can buy this at Cambridge University Press website, any brick and mortar store with an online presence you want to give a shout out to. Blackwells, Oxford. Okay. okay, there you go. Thank you for joining me all the way from the
2: UK, Ursula. Thank you so much, Lily. I appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure.